Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles, and we are going to be looking this morning at the sixth beatitude in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. I know these are unusual days, and I know that most of you, again, will be watching this online. And if you are a regular part of our church family, especially if you're watching this on the Lord's Day, I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to stop and access our service guide, um, some of the resources to aid your worship of the Lord today. Uh, someone wrote online, I, I hope that worship online doesn't turn into worship on demand. And we certainly want to do what we can to avoid that sense of just kind of tuning into the preaching station, um, just getting my sermon time in. We want to give the Lord's Day to the Lord and spend time worshiping Him. And if you didn't receive an email, uh, you can access that service guide through our church Facebook page or the Marketplace tab on our fbceasley.org website. I think that uh, last week, Brother Whitehead even got that on our YouTube uh, channel, and so you may be able to access it right with uh, the sermon, again, if you're watching online. Uh, but I do want to encourage you to do that. I did mention already that the focus of our attention this morning is going to be this sixth beatitude. And I want to have you go ahead and look there with me uh, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. And uh, you can follow along as I read, maybe even uh, just uh, say it right out loud with me. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we're going to go in reverse order this morning. Uh, we're going to start with that promise at the end of the verse uh, concerning what the blessed ones under discussion will see. I know the virus and uh, the responses to the virus have interrupted a number of our travel plans, especially uh, spring break being last week for many of us. Uh, if the circumstances change by the summer and you have some time and some money uh, to take a getaway, where would you want to go? In our area, in relatively short amount of time, you could either be in the mountains or you could be at the beach, and many of you would enjoy that. Um, if you had a bit more time, and maybe a bit more money as well, and you, you could take a longer trip, maybe you'd want to go out to some place like Yellowstone National Park. I was thinking about some of the memories that I have uh, from a trip there as a boy. Some of them are still very vivid. I remember... Uh, watching the, the geyser, Old Faithful, blow high into the air. I remember uh, the ground boiling up in, in the hot springs, uh, large waterfalls. But one of, the, one of the memories that is still just absolutely etched on my mind is watching a, a herd of elk. We actually had to pull over. Uh, multiple other cars had pulled over. There may have been hundreds of elk uh, that were going across um, the road. Eventually, uh, we got out of the car, and uh, as, as the elk went by, and we started to follow the, the end of that herd of elk, and uh, kind of running, and we go over a trail, and I turned a corner over a little hill, and came to an opening, and um, 
and I saw what to my mind was the biggest creature I had ever seen. It was an enormous bull moose standing in the middle of the river. And it was one of those things that just stopped me in my tracks. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Maybe you'd like to go see uh, a nature park or something like that. If I could take it quite a few steps forward and ask you what you would like to see if you were someone like Solomon and you had nearly unlimited uh, financial resources, you had the health and you had the leisure time to, to take full advantage of those resources and you could go anywhere you wanted to go. Where would you go? What would you want to see? Maybe some of you would say, Oh, I would take a trip to the Holy Land. Uh, maybe it would be something like the Alps, or maybe it, uh, it would be to Africa in one of those big game parks. Um, some, perhaps, the, the destination would actually be just leaving this Earth's atmosphere and, and, and going out into what we call outer space and g getting occasion to view the Earth or some other planet from that kind of vantage point. Maybe you're the kind of person uh, that, uh, while natural beauty or uh, historical uh, sites of historical significance is delightful, may maybe you plan your trips around who you get to see instead of where you're going to go. And if that's the case, and again, you had the time and, and money and you had the right connections, who would you be thrilled to meet, uh, to, to spend some time with? Maybe the person is, again, a his, uh, some historical figure. Maybe it's uh, someone that's something of a hero from all that you know of them. Or maybe it would just be some quiet time with, with one that's dearly beloved to you and you don't get to spend much time with. I'm guessing that all of us have known something at, at some level of standing in the presence of greatness. And just being nearly speechless. I mean, the sight and, and the experience of standing so near is just awe-inspiring. And, and you, you just almost freeze and try to take in as much as possible. I fear that my next question, just by, by the limits of my vocabulary and the limits of, of all of our fight, uh, finiteness, could, could sound trite. But what if you stood in the presence of the Creator Himself? I mean, if you were to stand in awe at the sight of some marvel of creation, what do you think it would be like to stand in the presence of the Creator Himself? If you've wondered what it must be like to be out in the Milky Way and view the earth and its surroundings from that vantage point, what do you think it would be like to see the God who one songwriter wrote, put each star in its lonely place and then wrap them in a darkened robe of space? If you have marveled at some human achievement or uh, some human ability or, or some display even of human virtue, remember that, that the greatest of men reflect in a finite and, and in a faulty form. They reflect an unlimited and perfect person. What would it be like to see Him? 
And in some respects, what I'm talking about this morning and trying to, to whet our appetite for and stir our imagination to, in some respects, that thought is almost unimaginable to us. That's the case, at least in part, because of the, the limits of our, of our present finite condition and, and, and certainly with the limits of uh, and the effects of our sinfulness. The Bible actually tells us that we could not now see God and live. On various occasions in the scripture, when men saw unusual displays of the radiant glory of God, they were actually thrust to the ground with a certain measure of fear, and they wondered if they would even live through the experience. God told Moses explicitly that no man could get um, a, a look, an unveiled glimpse of his glory and live. And it is true, as John 1, eight, uh, chapter 1 and verse 18 declares, that in terms of this existence, no man has seen God at any time. But it is also true that the scripture nurtures in the people of God the expectation that the day is coming when we will see God. Job chapter 19 and verse 25, Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold. The Apostle John had had something of the same expectation when he wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but, when, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And what Jesus is declaring in our text this morning is that it is a certain kind of people who will be so uniquely favored of God that they will actually see him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, with that assurance in mind, we do need to back up and take note of the fact that that promise is reserved for people that fit this description. These people are marked, first of all, by purity. And the word that is translated pure in this text is, is in its most literal usage, it referred to something that was unmixed. In our day, it would be like um, juice, for instance, that has not been diluted with water or had any other substance added or anything removed. Um, it could refer to uh, something not contaminated. We might talk about pure gold or sterling silver or, or dishes or garments that have been washed. They're not dirty. Um, the Greek word is found at least 26 times in the New Testament, and 10 of those times, it is translated as it is here um, as it, with our English word pure. A couple of times, it is translated clear, as in referring to clear glass. And then 12 times, it is translated clean. For instance, Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus and wrapped it, as you might expect, in a clean linen cloth. Same word that's translated here, pure. 
as you think about the understanding of the term, we also want to try to put ourselves in, in the position of Jesus' um, audience that day. And his audience was mostly a Jewish audience that was out there on the hillside as he preached the sermon. And, and many of them would have been thinking about purity through the lens of the Old Testament. This same word we're talking about uh, was found in the Greek edition of their Old Testament scriptures, which was their common Bible of the day. It was found there about 150 times. And the vast majority of the time, it had reference to their preparation for worship or the components of their worship. For instance, multiple furniture items of, of the tabernacle. And then later, the temple. They, they were to be made, or in some cases, overlaid with pure gold. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the candlestick, various dishes and utensils. Then you could talk about other accessories like olive oil and frankincense and other perfumes uh, that were used to, to be used in worship. They were to be pure. They were to be unmixed and, and uncontaminated. Um, the word was used to describe garments that, that were washed to be worn for worship. And even, in some cases, the bodies of the, of the worshipers themselves. It was used to describe animals that were washed before the offering of the sacrifices. It was used to describe skin that was free from the disease of leprosy or some other element that might contaminate. And again, as I've said, with 150 references to to concepts like that, there was no doubt that God was very concerned about people learning the difference between what was clean and what was unclean. But sadly, there was also no doubt that for the vast majority of these people, they, they ended up abusing this emphasis and they got entirely preoccupied with what was external and ritual and ceremonial cleansing alone. If you will, just turn over still in the same book of Matthew to chapter number 15, and, and you can see the situation as Jesus encounters it. Matthew chapter 15, and, and uh, <laughs> look first of all just at verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down later. But notice the, the backdrop. Then came Jesus... Uh, then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. I want to have us come down to verse number 17. Do you not understand, Jesus said, that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draught. But those things which proceed out of the mouth cometh forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. You could see that they're thinking of the horror of Jesus' disciples not, not cleansing their hands as they ate. And Jesus said, the horror is that many of you have not cleansed your hearts. Skip over to chapter 23. And many of you know that all of chapter 23 is really Jesus 
exposing of the, the hypocritical practices of the Pharisees. And if you come down to verse number 25, we could see many others, but we'll just drop right into this one because of our theme. Notice verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. And uh, the confrontations with, with the Pharisees like this are, again, well known. But Jesus proclaimed that same emphasis to the common people that gave an ear to his teaching. And again, back in our, our text in Matthew chapter 5, he, he proclaimed that the purity it would take to truly see God, to see and experience God, was a purity of the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And as we start to think about purity in, in that region of the heart, we need to note that the heart in the Bible is just um, uh, is a reference to the center of man's personality. It involves the mind, the, the will, the emotions, the, the intellect, the decision-making, and and obviously the emotional component. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the what? Of the heart, as a man thinketh in his heart. So is he. Not only does, does the Bible refer to the heart as the, as the center of the intellect and the control of the, internet, uh, the, the intellect, but Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 speaks of men with hard and impenitent hearts who are treasuring unto themselves, as it were, wrath against the day of wrath. There the emphasis is primarily on the will there's a hard will a hard heart impenitent will a will that will not yield in submission to god in romans chapter 5 and verse 5 the apostle speaks of of the love of god being shed abroad in our hearts and there the reference is to the emotional component of man the the love of god shed abroad in our hearts so so the reference to the heart, in the most general terms, is a reference to the center of man's personality, our, our mind, our emotions, our will. And brethren, if that is where purity is needed, then we are all in big trouble on our own. The prophet Jeremiah said it succinctly when he declared, the heart is deceitful, above all things, and desperately wicked. That's the state of, of our heart, apart from the work of God. Proverbs 20 and verse 9 asks the rhetorical question, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from sin? And the obvious answer is, no one. Man cannot cleanse his own heart. 1 John 1 and verse 7 tells us that it is the blood of Christ, God's Son, that cleanseth us from all sin. Listen, you can try to clean up your heart 
by turning to ethics, to morality, to religion. I mean, you could go extreme practices of asceticism or any effort, and and you could put in all effort, and your heart will be just as corrupt at the end of your efforts as it was at the beginning. Only God can cleanse the heart from its impurities. And, And praise be to God that he promises to do just that. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, This shall be the covenant that I will make. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. I will forgive their iniquity and and will remember their sin no more. Again, both the Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews affirm about that covenant, that it is the blood of Christ that is the provision and the guarantee of this covenant of God to do a work in our hearts. The consistent witness of all of the Scripture is that purity of heart starts with something that only God can do. And I want to ask all of us this morning, have you ever come to God and in one way or another just told him and confessed to him, I have a dirty heart, a, a contaminated heart, a, a mixed, a divided heart, and I know my condition is without any cure. Have you in that state cried out for his cleansing? Trusting in the work of Christ alone as the provision of the need of your heart. When God hears and answers that prayer at the moment of saving faith, he treats the believer as judicially clean and right before him. In terms of a man standing with God, the slate is just wiped clean. All the marks All the stains are gone and and gone for good. But brethren, God also answers that prayer very practically as well. When during the moments of our earthly life, as we yield to the urging of the Spirit of God and His Holy Spirit, we plead with Him to cleanse us. And God's going to answer that prayer finally and completely when He takes us to be with Him in glory and purified from all evil, were brought without spot into his holy presence. We spent some time when, when we looked at the previous beatitude last week, blessed are the merciful. We spent some time discussing the fact that, that multiple Bible students see in, in these several beatitudes a change of emphasis. You can recall perhaps that that, uh, that, that the qualities of the first several Beatitudes are pointing to uh, a repentance. And what are the components of, of a repentance? And a man turning and longing to just be right with God. And then these that we're now picking up with on mercy and purity of heart and so on. Uh, multiple ones speak of these as evidences of a man uh, having come savingly to Christ. And now we're seeing the outworking of of, uh, that coming to God on his terms and trusting alone in his salvation. And if that is the case, I believe it is, then this matter of striving after and and longing for a God-given, ongoing cleansing of my heart 
is a vital sign in terms of an authentic spiritual life. It's a vital sign of, of, of a converted life, of a changed life. And one man that I didn't quote last time drew some parallels between, again, the early Beatitudes that are, are concerned with our need and our consciousness of our need and, and those that we're considering now as, as practical results of, of the changed life. And I know I may be taxing your minds here just a little bit, but try to do what you can to stay with me. Think of the comparisons, think of the connections between um, the first beatitude, for instance, in, in verse number three. The first beatitude is to be poor in what? To be poor in spirit. And then the fifth one in verse number seven, which is blessed are the merciful. Now again, think about the connections of this. Merciful people really are people that, that have and do realize that in themselves, they also are in great poverty of spirit. They recognize that they are in themselves nothing at all. And when their view of themselves is right, and this is true, and, and we could say this across the board without even considering these two Beatitudes, when my view of myself is right, I will be well on my way to doing what? To treating others right. Think of Ephesians chapter 4. We are to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, even as what? Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And, and when I recognize that I'm nothing, and that I'm just saved because of the great love of God and the mercy of God, I'm prepared to be merciful to others. But then think of the parallel now between the second beatitude in verse 4 and this one that we're considering today. The second one speaks of what? Blessed are they that, that mourn. Right? Well, what do blessed people mourn about? Well, they mourn about the state of their hearts. They mourn about their sinfulness in their heart. They mourn about the fact that not only do I do things wrong, but I do things wrong because I really want to do things wrong. In my heart, I love what is contrary to God. People that mourn realize that their central need is their internal makeup their internal character, their personality. And, and this is what they mourn about. And here's the connection. Again, the first step to purity of heart that we're considering this morning is acknowledging my impurity. And it is mourning to such an extent that I go to the only source for cleansing and purity. I want to ask again each of us, what is it that you have thought would be a distinctive mark or, or, or maybe a package of marks that you are basically right with God? You can pretty well count on seeing him in heaven on the other side of the grave. 
Have you thought it was acceptance of factual statements declared in the gospel or some other doctrinal creed? Have, have you thought that your faithful church attendance, I mean, at least pretty faithful, maybe your labors in conjunction with a true Christian church would be assurance enough? Have you thought that it was about being careful and being scrupulous regarding an assortment of lifestyle choices? We live by high standards. The problem is that all of those things can be done by anyone for a time at least and without us really knowing the true status of the heart. And the fact is that, that I can accept a creed and I can show up in church and I can serve and I can live by high standards and the fact is I can have a heart that is full of bitterness and envy and strife and a tongue and a face and a demeanor that reveals all of that is true. Do you care about being so full of pride in your own estimations of, of, of your judgments or of a collection of your abilities? Do you, do you care that your appetites are sensual? Do you care about the multitude of breaches of integrity? Do you care that there is so little to any of the washing of the water by the word so that there is true inner transformation taking place? Do you care that there are so many compromising, uh, compromises taking place because there simply is not a vibrant walking by faith that overcomes the world? Brethren, do you not know that Christ and the gospel are concerned with your heart. It is true that believing people can commit great acts of impurity. They can, in a very practical way, defile their hearts at incredible lengths. You could think of examples. I think many of our minds go right to the psalmist to the king of Israel, to David, a man after God's own heart, as a prime example of, of what it is to commit incredible acts of impurity. But the fact is that every true believer ultimately knows the convicting ministry of the Spirit of God in his heart and responds with sincerity at that level. And when David wrote something of his confession, think about the expressions that he articulated. Psalm 51, verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Verse number 6, Behold, he said, Thou desirest truth, in the inward parts. Verse number 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And when he finishes down in verses 16 and 17, he, he says, thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. This is what the, the life of a true believer is really gripped with as the Spirit of God brings that conviction. And the fact is, because of past experience with being deceived by by his own heart, the believer learns to pray as David did. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We mentioned before that when, when we ask God to search our heart and, and to try us, it's not as if we're We're asking God to figure out what's going on in our hearts. God knows the state of our heart. What we're really acknowledging is that I don't know the state of my own heart. And I'm asking God to search me and God to reveal to me what he knows about the state of my deceitful heart. Psalm 19 and verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. That's the the burden for the purity of heart. And I've spoken this morning as if the promise of seeing God is a matter of something that is yet future and literal and physical. I've done that because I, I do think that is the primary reference point. But I would have us note that there are references which speak of seeing God in such a way as to imply that part of this is fellowship with God even now. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other. That is, I have fellowship with him, he has fellowship with me, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us, So us who have this fellowship, us who without such continual cleansing would would soon lose again that fellowship, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6 says this, Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. There is some connection between the concept of of seeing God and knowing a relationship with God. 3 John, there's only one chapter there, but verse 11 says, He that doeth evil hath not seen God. Now you can be certain that where there is little regard for purity of heart, there is limited fellowship. There's limited enjoyment of a personal relationship with God, a a fellowship with God. And no one should think that this emphasis on the heart uh, means that the heart is the only consideration. Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who shall stand, who shall, I'm sorry, ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place, and then he gives this answer, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. The reality is that that dirty hands, spiritually speaking, 
expose and reveal a dirty heart. But when you start to talk about one or the other, the emphasis is this, that that where the cleansing has to start is it has to start on the heart level. To literally, physically see God in the future, in glory, there must be a work of God to cleanse us from the inside out. And now, today, to increase my experience of fellowship with God, there must be a response of yielding to the Holy Spirit to clean me up on the inside today. Would you bow your heads and and close your eyes? And I just want to encourage you even now to spend a, a few moments with the Lord, asking the Lord to search and to know and to reveal to you what he knows about your heart and to seek him for the cleansing that only he can give. And then as you do that, don't fail to thank him for the cleansing that has been provided through the shed blood of Jesus Christ.